This is Footy Time with Daniel Andrews, and I'm joined on the other line by Johnny Raff. How are we, Johnny? Very good. Thanks, Dan. Uh, seven and oh. <laughs> seven is heaven. Got it in there quickly. It was looking a little worrying in that first half, wasn't it? It was, but uh, look, some really good signs that they're maturing, and yeah, it's a very, very, yeah, I, th- I think they're going to be something this year. Well, you were the one who said they weren't contenders last week, so... I did say that. I did say that. <laughs> They're at the top of the ladder now, so maybe I have to change the tune. <laughs> oh, I did say that, but I also would have expected to beat the bottom team convincingly. Yeah, but that, look, yeah. no, look, we're... You can't play your best every week, can you? No, so. you can't. No, no. It's, there's no... You say you want your team to play four quarters of footy every week, and it's just not always possible. We all want to find that perfect game week in, week out, but you've got to be realistic. Exactly. Any wins a good win in this competition, even though I think North were like fifteen dollar outsiders. There's no guarantees in footy, and they were competitive as well. So you know they can play like that more often. Then there'll be some light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully for them. They're really picking Melbourne apart with some short kicking. I guess Melbourne didn't put a lot of pressure on, but uh, did seem like they had some pretty good skill going in that first half. It seemed like they were really up for the for the running and getting to uncontested ball, winning 50-50s, and we just weren't quite on that at all. We weren't running hard enough, just didn't want to do the work. And, yeah, trouble changed after halftime. But, yeah, it, it seemed it seemed like they had they knew they had a chance to, you know, get a win, and they were up for it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, what caught your eye from round seven? Oh, what caught my eye from round seven? Well, look, I cannot go past Jesse Hogan for the Giants. Uh, I don't usually sort of I don't usually put too much focus on a player leaving us and hoping that they do well and all that stuff I know a lot of people sort of say that oh I wish him all the best and that they sort of usually just become just any other player for me but in this case it was an exception I really wanted to see Jesse perform and he was fantastic he had I think 15 possessions four goals um just back to that sort of you know, that Hogan that we saw in 2018, just leading up the ground, getting, you know, making a difference up the ground, but also um, impacting the scoreboard. He was a much-loved player at Melbourne, even though he wasn't there for that long. I think everyone really did like him as a player. And, uh, yeah, I guess things went south for him a little bit after going back to Fremantle. And for whatever reason, it didn't really work there. Being closer to family didn't seem to help him. But third chance, which is great for him. Yeah, I don't know if we'll ever know what... Um, what happened around that time and, and what the reasons were that he did sort of end up going back. I think he always wanted to go back, but um, it, it was strange, I guess, the way it ended up happening and that uh, Melbourne were keen to make the trade and that. But um, yeah, I still don't know quite how it didn't work out in prayer, but he's got another chance now and it was just really great to see him back out there. He looked to have a bit of his athleticism back in speed, so I guess... He's, he has had a few injury issues over the journey as well, so it's good to see him with that back. And I think he can be really, really useful for GWS. I think it's key that he's not actually the first key forward. So he did play better for Melbourne when he was sort of playing second fiddle to Tom McDonald. And then in, in 2019, when he was sort of asked to be the main man, didn't really work out as well. But, you know, GWS has Himmelberg and Finlayson up there as well, so he can just sort of be you know, the second or third to also might suit him a bit more. He's he's not your true full forward, even though I guess we sort of stuck him there a few times and sort of wanted to just kick it onto his head. Um, I think yeah, it's not it, his he, go. He's, he's not bad in the contest, but he's definitely, 
his strength is, I think, leading up the ground and, and, and working to get his touches and things like that. He's very aerobic for a big guy. Um, but yeah, uh, it, he could absolutely be a game changer for the Giants this season. And if you have him staying healthy, uh, you know, they may be able to make a push for the eight. They're looking a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to confess that you actually stole my what caught my eye, so I'm <laughs> going to go for Jesse Hogan as well. <laughs> so I've tried pretty hard to not go for a Melbourne player in this sort of thing, but seeing as you stole mine, I think I'll yes. have to go for Bailey Fritch. <laughs> ah, yes. So we talked a little bit on the D's version of this podcast a couple of weeks ago about how I sort of thought he was, you know, becoming one of the best medium forwards going around. He seems to have fixed his goal kicking and another six goals on the weekend, finding it on the ground, snapping it, incredibly clean player, uh, even delivering it to other players pretty well as well when he gets the chance. I think he's just sort of like, the, he's almost the perfect hybrid forward for Melbourne or for anyone really. He just, he's always going to get a certain number of shots at goal. He's kicking straight now and uh, he, he still can put a bit of pressure on when the ball hits the ground. So I don't know how many goals he's kicked for the season now, but it's quite a few, I think. So he's definitely uh, straightened up. Well, I totally agree with you, Dan. I think he definitely has the potential to become one of the best sort of mid-sized forwards in the comp. I think he's, yeah, he's about 188 centimetres. Um, but his game yesterday was unbelievable. I, I actually didn't realise how many goals he'd kicked until he was aiming, um, lining up for the sixth. Um, but he, that was literally the difference, I think, in his game. He has never had any problem finding the footy and getting marks inside 50. And he's always got these sort of, you know, creative spots to run to and that. Um, but it was always about the kicking. And he seems to have now cleaned that up a bit. And he's just kicking through the ball a lot more. He's not sort of, you know, arcing around as much. And uh, it's that old-fashioned sort of just straight lines thing. And I, I really thought he kicked beautifully, yeah. It was just a nice routine and didn't rush it. And The Fritch fade yeah. is gone. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, he's um, kicking a lot straighter. And but he's the thing is he's also contributing to the forward pressure. I reckon he's he's definitely coming up with his um you know a good amount of tackles each game. I mean we, I know we talk about Spargo and Neil Bullen and Cozzy, but I, I think Fritch is he's doing a good job to chip in there as well when it's in in the balls in his area and he hasn't got it. Um, yeah, he's closing him down as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for the first six rounds at least, Melbourne was rated the best for inside fifty pressure. So you can't have that sort of stat without the majority, if not all of your forwards, contributing to that. So I think that was one reason people were a little bit concerned about bringing Ben Brown in because we sort of know he's not that sort of player who does that. And it did fall down a little bit on the weekend, especially in that first half. So it'll be interesting to track that as we go forward, whether Melbourne can still maintain that manic pressure with Ben Brown inside. Just quickly, what did you think of Ben's game? Um, Well, obviously, he's a very good shot for goal. There was a lot of, you know arms up, bringing it to ground without much chance of marking it. You know, it's his first game, but uh, yeah, definitely not overly convinced yet. Hopefully they give Wiedemann a shot. I think he's got a lot of potential and can help the side. And it'll be just interesting to see what they do now that uh, Tomlinson's gone down and they need to rejig things a little bit. But yeah, like in terms of that pressure style you're talking about that Melbourne have been so good at, Having Ben Brown in the side is almost the complete opposite to trying to do that. So I'm just not sure it's going to work. Um, I totally agree with you there. I mean, it's it's his first game. Um, I thought he played, he, he was fair. He, he had a fair performance. Um, well, you know, I think he kicked two in the end. Uh, 
he'll he'll get that back. I think in, in about a month, he'll I think he'll get to more contests and he'll um, he'll clunk more marks and that. But um, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm with you a bit there. He, we are not really playing that sort of style at the moment where we're going to be kicking it continuously to the hot spot and Brown. Uh, we do tend to kick to the pockets a lot more and, and find those those other sort of leads in that and really draw the defence away from from the hot spot. Um, so I'm not sure. It'll be really interesting to see what happens. I would also like to see Sam get a go because he's been ripping it up in the VFL and um, we all know that he's talented. So, yeah, he sort of should get his chance at some point. Yeah, I don't think Melbourne... Well, they're not going to change their game style to accommodate Brown. So if he can't play within what they're trying to do at the moment... He's not going to stay on the side. It's as simple as that. Give him, totally. you know, two to four weeks, and if it doesn't look like it's working, I yeah, I'd say play a short of forward line. I think you can get by with two tools. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get into game of the round. And this time around, it was the battle between the Sydney Swans and the Geelong Cats up at the SCG. So both these teams in the top eight, obviously. And uh, I think most people thought that Geelong were going to take the chocolates here, but it turned out to be a pretty cracking game in the end. Yes, uh, I definitely thought Geelong were getting the chocolates, especially after pumping them up so much last week. Um, this it, this was an incredible game. I, I honestly don't know how Geelong didn't manage to win it. Um, yes, there's a few statistics here that I'll get to after we sort of go through it a bit. But um, yeah, let's let's get stuck into it and see where it all went wrong because I still can't quite figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, it was a horror start for the Cats right from the beginning when Jordan Clark went for a stroll across the back line and found himself surrounded by Cats and not able to dispose of it properly. Papley gathered and snapped the first within the first minute. So wasn't a great start for the Cats. But it really was their quarter. So with about six minutes left on the clock, they managed to slam on four goals to give them a 28-point lead. So the first of these I wanted to bring up was a little uh, cameo from Myers. So he'd marked more or less on the 50. He's not the longest kick. So he was kind of looking inboard and he hit just this perfect little spear pass to Menangola. Although the Sydney players were all around him, they had no chance of cutting it off and he went back and slotted that one as well. And yeah, what really stood out was Geelong were getting quite a few running goals and uh, there was even a few players either goaling from the square or, you know, spare players in the square while it was going through. So they're really all over them in this part of the first quarter. Um, This was actually the best first quarter of any team this season. Uh, Six goals, five to two goals, one. And um, yeah, you couldn't have wished for a better start for the Cats, yeah. So pretty much... The expected thing would have been from here for Geelong really to go on with it. Sydney haven't been great in recent weeks, but it was actually their kids who who found a little bit of light for them early in the second. So both Warner and Goulden gold, Warner selling some candy and Goulden marking low down close to goal. And when McInerney marked strongly near the boundary and slotted one there as well, Sydney had a five goal to one quarter. And now they're only six points down. And the Cats, having had so much more of the play, led by the six extra points they'd kicked. Lots of scoring shots there for Geelong, and we'll get into this a bit later on, but really, really 
really butchering their efforts on goal. And in the end, uh, yeah, it, they should have been a lot further in front at halftime. Yeah, absolutely. And one other thing that was really starting to stand out was Tom Hickey in the ruck. His strength and follow-up at the clearances was just too much for Stanley. Yeah, uh, one of the big stories to come out of the game. Uh, I thought um, when he got injured a few weeks ago, I think we all thought he was going to be out a little bit longer, but he came back and he really, yeah, he gave Stanley a bath um, to the point where the Cats took Stanley out and put Blitzhoffs in the ruck for the rest of the game. It was, it was. He did a bit better as well, Blitzhoffs. He did do better. He did do better, but Hickey, really good game from him. Um, yeah, look, he ended up with 20 touches, 10 clearances. Um, you know, he's turning out to be a bit of a surprise packet. Yeah, his clearance work for a ruckman has been amazing, really. Just that strength once the ball hits the ground and often taking it out of the ruck as well. So that's the next point I had here. So in the third quarter, Hickey basically just threw Stanley out of the way in a fair enough way and snapped the goal. And uh, <laughs> that actually evened the scores up at 58 apiece. So it's a really big problem for Geelong. And it has been for a long time. Like every now and then Stanley has a great game and everyone says, just leave him in. But it does seem to be this never-ending weakness for Geelong in the ruck. The, you know, teams can't get a hold of him and they're never going to be having, you know, a really clear advantage there or very rarely do they get that. Well, yeah, there's there's some clubs that just really struggle to nail down a position. I mean, you know, the Bulldogs for many years, it was the forward line. And um, I, th- I remember way back, I think around the 90s or the 2000s, um, Essendon went for a very long period without a, a good ruckman after Simon Madden. Um, but Geelong seemed to have this problem as well. They, they really haven't had someone they can rely on uh, week in, week out since maybe like maybe someone like Brad Ottens. Um Stanley does a good job. He's a decent athlete. Um, but yeah, I mean, a few years ago, they had Zach Smith, same thing, sort of turned up every now and then. But it really makes you wonder if that was the missing piece of the jigsaw and um, getting a few more flags over that the last decade. And I guess GWS have had a similar problem. Like Mumford did a great job when he was there and obviously sort of pinch hitting now a bit, but they haven't been able to nail down that rock spot either. And Perhaps that has sort of cost them a chance of actually making a bit more of an impact through their, you know, window of the last five years. So it's really, people do, you know, say how important a Ruckman, but when you don't have a decent one, it really can show up in some pretty big <laughs> for ways. For sure, for sure. All right, so it was actually McLean for Sydney with another two goals after strong marks that actually gave the Swans a one-point lead, although this was pretty short-lived because uh, Hawkins was able to nail one from a set shot to give the Cats back the lead. So you can see it was goal for goal. So this more or less continued into the last as well, this pattern of play where both teams were hitting the scoreboard. So it was a goal to Jeremy Cameron in general play, but it was answered straight away again by yet another stoppage goal, this time to Ollie Florent, who was pretty close into goal. So... I guess this was, a bit of, this was a bit of a hallmark of what Sydney was doing. They weren't getting a lot of entries, but they were making the most of what they got, whether it be from just scrounging snaps from general play or these 450 stoppages that where they were able to get a couple of goals. That is something about the Swans and their forwards, isn't it? Um, they're razor sharp when they go inside 50. They usually get a scoring shot. Like Guys like yeah, Papley, Florent, Golden... Um, they're usually impacting the scoreboard. They don't need a lot of uh, of inside fifties at all. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll go through some of the stats after we've done the recap, but it was stark just how uh, big a difference there was with the amount of ball Geelong had compared to Sydney in this game. Mm. All right, so when when Hawkins spilt a mark around the 50, he managed to wheel around pretty quickly and get it deep and set up a little bit of chaos about 10 metres out, and it ended with Dalhouse just getting his boot to the ball right on the line. And this gave him a bit of breathing space. So a 10-point lead with less than five minutes left. Looked like Geelong might be on the way to another win. So now go to a play where Geelong was trying to clear it outside 50. So there was a contest about on the 50-meter line, and it was actually Rowbottom who got a push in the back. So he had a 50-meter kick for goal from about a 45-degree angle. And on the right boot, he roosted a long kick to get it over the line. And now the Cats lead was less than a kick. It was really starting to tighten up. Beautiful kick, that one as well. Yeah, absolutely. He flushed it. So with a quick play through the middle, after another free kick, Cunningham managed to get it to Papley, who edged his opponent under the ball and getting back onto it, going inside 50, he managed to hand off as he was almost tackled, but he just managed to shrug it off. And he got the ball back pretty much straight away as well. And he had just enough time to get a left foot snap away. And it was really a straight one, almost landing on the goal line. And the Sydney crowd erupted. It was now the Swans by two points. Yeah, fantastic goal, that one. Um, Luke Parker's experience really shone through there as well. I mean, he just knew that back Papley in there, give him a chance one-on-one. And you hate to lose to a bouncing goal, don't you? I mean, as good <laughs> as it was, it is kind of it is kind of cruel. A little bit, yeah. So it was Parker who got it really quickly onto Cunningham in that play. Yeah, sorry, and then yeah, Cunningham yeah. got it deep into Papley. But yes. yeah, they, sorry, Cunningham rather, yeah, that's right. But yeah. they got it. Yeah, that was really key because you know usually when they get a free kick, everything just sort of stops. But like as soon as he received the ball, he, he was Parker off. got it on, so yeah. it gave him this great chance. Yeah, and they did t- the make the most of it exactly. for sure. So up the cats then with a minute left. There was a kick out of the pack, which, fortuitously enough, landed in Jeremy Cameron's lap next to the behind post. Yet, it was actually the umpire yelling, play on, play on, as the rule of the week reared its ugly head. No 15 metres, apparently. So this was uh, obviously uh, overruled later on. Uh, The AFL said that this was the incorrect decision, but doesn't change the call on the day, though. That's right. The AFL came out and said they blew the call, I guess. Um, and when you look at it, um, like the goal square is about nine metres, I think. Is that right? Um, it was probably about at least two or three metres before that where the kick happened and it went past, I reckon, about, I would say about five. I think they've sort of, I saw something on Fox footy yesterday. They, they reckon it was around about 20 metres um, that would have been my guess, yeah, 20 metres. 20 metres. We've seen a lot shorter kicks than that paid this year. We've seen some 10-metre passes get paid this year. So uh, I, at the time, I thought it might have been touched off the boot. But, yeah, that would have been a real, real tough one for the Cats fans. I think everyone was just so surprised. Like, it didn't even look like one that you would even consider paying this, you know, not 15. But I did see it a few times throughout the weekend. It did seem to be almost the rule of the round. They're trying to be a bit tighter on it. But it is like a really hard thing to estimate how far it the is. ball has travelled. 
It is definitely. I mean, it's not it's not easy. <laughs> you don't have a tape measure out there or anything like that. But um, there was also right before the siren that uh, the tackle from Joel Selwood. Uh, maybe if there was a couple more seconds, it could have been holding the ball. But yeah, I absolutely. don't think there was as much. There wasn't as much controversy with that one. I would say. So that was from the very next stoppage uh, after this play we were just talking about here. So basically, Robottom gathered and was immediately wrapped up, and he was laying a bit of an egg with the ball. He did not try to get it out at all. But luckily for Sydney, he'd only been sort of over it for you know probably two seconds before the siren went. If there was another two seconds on the clock, I reckon the umpire might have blown his whistle here and stayed so holding the ball. I think so too, but geez, it's a gutsy thing to do, isn't it? Because you're never really sure as a player exactly how much time there is, unless the unless the runner came out and and told him that he's been counting it in his head or something. But um, yeah, it was <laughs> it was a gutsy move. It was a little odd though, like because obviously you don't want to knock it out in defence into a dangerous spot, but he really did just sit on the ball. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. maybe he knew that there was only a couple of seconds left. I don't know, but it he was a bit have. strange. So that was it. Sydney won the game by two points, 90 to 88, if memory serves me correctly. But I think, Johnny, you said you had some interesting stats to take us through with this game. A game that Geelong probably shouldn't have lost in the end, but Sydney, with their efficiency and accuracy as well, managed to find a way. Well, just have a listen to some of these. Um, Geelong had a plus 80 disposal differential. They had a plus 33 contested possession differential plus three clearances, plus 26 inside 50s, and plus eight scoring shots. There's not too many games that you don't win when you have those kinds of numbers. Yeah, those last two especially with the inside 50s and scoring shots. I think, yes, yeah, Swan, the Swans were very accurate and uh, major long pay. But, uh, yeah, when you're generating that many inside 50s, you've got to be winning games. And accuracy is good footy, as we, uh, yes, as we both agree. Absolutely. So one that got away for Geelong, will it be the difference between them making top four and not? We will have to wait and see. But I guess with the Swans as well, you know, people were starting to write them off a little. So there's still a team to be reckoned with when uh, they get their game going. So definitely uh, in the hunt for the eight. Massive, massive win for Sydney. They're absolutely in the hunt for the eight. And you need these kinds of results, especially after what happened a few weeks ago against the Giants. Uh, it's great for the young group. Um, but on the flip side, Geelong, massive loss. They, they needed to find a way to get across the line there, uh, and I think that would have been better for just banking that win. I, I still don't know how they lost it. They really, really butchered it in the end. I, I thought Tom Hawkins really showed a lack of leadership with his, um, with his last two set shots in that fourth quarter, and it was very lucky to get that on to the del- um when he dropped the mark in the Dell House goal after that was, mm. I just yeah, I, 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 yeah, we're all entitled to bad games, but I just thought he, he let his team down a little bit there, and um, yeah, it's it's a tough one to swallow for the Cats fans. Um, could it hurt them? Well, we don't know, but yeah, real tough one to swallow. Yeah, absolutely. So, I guess people thought they'd turn a bit of the corner last week, and you know they're still a very good side, but you know are they as good as last year? Are they better than last year? You have to sort of improve, don't you? So on the evidence of this year so far, you wouldn't say they've improved, but still plenty of time. Um, and uh, obviously Dangerfield's still to come back. But I guess the jury's still out on Geelong, away from home especially. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say so. All right, let's move to our next topic. So 
had a little bit of a look at the top eight, and uh, there's a lot of familiar teams in the top eight at the moment, and perhaps it might be going to stay this way in one form or another. The position's obviously likely to change, but I'm not looking. I'm looking at this top eight, and I'm not thinking there's going to be a huge amount of movement. So let's have a little bit of a chat about this. So just to preface this, the top eight as it stands is Melbourne in first, Bulldogs second, Port Adelaide third, Sydney fourth, the Cats fifth, Richmond sixth, Brisbane seventh, and West Coast just moved into the eighth with uh, their win in the Derby. So uh, yeah, what do you reckon, Johnny? Who might drop out here, or like? Are you thinking more or less in the same vein as me that this may be the top eight? I'm definitely thinking along those lines. I think it's going to be hard to break into that eight now. Um, but there are still a couple of teams that could make cases. I think um, I think the Giants could get on a bit of a run and they could pressure, you know, you know, pressure those teams up there. Um, the Suns, actually, that was a massive win for them. They needed to take a scalp arguable whether Collingwood's a scalp, but they came to Melbourne and they, you know, won on a ground that they probably haven't won at much before. So that, that that was interesting. They'll get a few players back. I'm not sure if they will make it, but they can at least make, make some noise. Um, Frio I was a little bit disappointed with. Uh, I thought that was a big chance to them. Didn't really learn that much about West Coast from that win, I thought. I mean, they got the job done, but I think that maximum two changes to this eight. I'm thinking along... I'm a lot more along the lines of you. That All right, so you're thinking probably more likely either one or no changes rather than two? I think so, yes. Okay. Who'd be the most vulnerable then, who's in the eight at the moment then? Uh, I'd have to go with West Coast. I just think, oh, wow, I know okay. I, like watching the, I like watching the Eagles, but I think that there's, there's just a few injuries there that are really going to hurt them in certain games where it might be a 50-50 and... Yeah, uh, I think. Uh, yeah, I think that 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 might just catch up with them in the end of you know in a long season. Um, but Brisbane, I think, yeah, I always thought that they were still a chance to the. I'm not sure if they'd make top four, but I definitely think Brisbane have got a, a nice, nice run here where they can you know consolidate their spot in the eight. But I think, yeah, look, it's it's pretty much those two. I think. I think the top six really shouldn't miss. Okay, so you really think Sydney should make finals from here? Oh, I they've think got so. the five wins. Yeah. yeah, I definitely think that Sydney, it's truly their place to lose. Yeah, I guess when you win five out of seven, you probably should be making the finals. So yep. we'll see if they can keep up the good work in one form or another. So, yeah, so I guess for teams like Frio, GWS, St Kilda, Carlton, and maybe a lesser extent Gold Coast, the work is definitely in front of them to, you know, kick one of these other teams out of the eight. But, uh, yeah, it's just interesting how starting to settle down. Adelaide's fallen out of the eight. Uh, West Coast's come back in. Brisbane's come back in. So, yeah, a little bit. Seems like it's taking shape a little bit now. If you could pick one team outside the eight to sort of back as a, you know, outside horse or whatever in the race, uh, who would you pick? Yeah, I'd go for GWS. I think they've got the most potential. Yep. Their midfield is still very strong. If Mumford can play enough games, I know that's a big if, if their forward line can start functioning a little bit better, which it has in recent weeks, although they're still a little bit uh, Toby Green-centric, they do still have quite a few other options there who can start playing a little bit better, the tall forwards that we're talking about. I think GWS is the one who could come up with a bit of a rush and you know challenge one of these teams, yeah. 
I think so too. I think that yeah, there's just the talent's there. Uh, it's just a matter of putting it all together. Um, yeah, St Kilda look a, a lot. St Kilda look a lot better with their two rucks in as well. So they I do. Guess maybe although I think they've had comparatively like most a lot of their easy games like on paper at least they've actually already had. So I'm pretty sure their second half of the season is actually really difficult. Well, very interesting game this week against the Suns at Metricon. That could be really worth watching. Uh, if they can get a win there, who knows? But, uh, yeah, I would be fancying the Giants over the Saints at this point. Absolutely. All right, let's go to our next topic. So this is something that never is too far away from the headlines. Ports and their want to play in their prison bar jumper. So, of course, they got to do this a couple of years ago in the showdown against Adelaide. They wore the prison bar jumper, and basically by doing that, they agreed to not wear it again. (laughs) But uh, as with these sorts of things, they're never too far away from coming back into the conversation. So, basically, Port wants to play in this jumper. It looks... Very similar to Collingwood's jumper in some ways. And, uh, yeah, I guess Collingwood's very opposed to this. So that's sort of where the argument sits at the moment. Collingwood doesn't want them to wear it. They want to wear it. I've looked into this in the last few days extensively, just trying to find all sorts of facts and that and what original agreements entailed and what teams were allowed to do when they entered the AFL. And it was actually very hard to find a lot of that information. and quite a lot of the stories, especially uh, the Kane Corns and Eddie Maguire stash on Footy Classified last week, um, there wasn't a lot of evidence in that. There was there was a lot of sort of conjecture in that, and um, oh, you know that 2007 agreement uh, was based on heritage games, but there's no such thing as heritage games now. But the showdown's the next best thing to a heritage game. There's a lot of sort of you know just snakes and ladders type stuff. I thought in these arguments. Um, David Koch believes they were tricked into signing that agreement in 2007 uh, because they believed that Collingwood uh, knew that they were going to scrap Heritage Round. Again, couldn't find a skerrick of evidence on this. Um, Eddie constantly talks about Port taking the money to forego their history when they entered the AFL. I'm not quite sure what the alternative would have been for Port when they entered the league. Um, should they? Is he suggesting they should have stayed in the SANFL if they wanted to stay the Magpies? Is it their fault that they're called the Magpies? Because if it was someone <laughs> like Sturt or Norwood, would they have been okay? Like, that, uh, there's a lot of stuff that just—it's—it's it's actually become a really childish debate at the moment. Um, so I can't really comment too much on the facts, but I can definitely give an opinion on it. And I, I think that if it was to like if it was to go to like, if Eddie was serious and it actually did go to court i think right now he'd probably have a case um because everything he said about that agreement and whatever the original ones were uh they haven't exactly been broken um but do port deserve the chance to honor their heritage and their history by wearing this jumper in a showdown i want to make that clear that this i think the question is about a showdown I think they should, um, and I don't think it really hurts anyone either. Um, if it, if it was uh, if you're talking about wearing it on a regular basis, that's another kettle of fish altogether. But I think for this one, I think they should. 
Yeah, I don't issue. really see any reason other than all this like petty stuff why they shouldn't be allowed to wear it in the showdown. Adelaide's jumper looks nothing like theirs. Um, I think you know Port's jumper is different enough that you know you can't say that it's the same as the Collingwood's jumper. If anything, like jumpers like Richmond and Essendon are more similar than these two. So, like I can sort of see where the Collingwood side of things, but you know if if you're not playing Collingwood. Why does it even matter, really? And, like, I understand, like, the intellectual property side of things, but surely, like, one game a year you should be allowed to wear it. Um, and, yeah, maybe that was that was a theory I sort of had, and I'm not, absolutely not putting words in any of Maguire's mouth, but uh, I feel that maybe deep down he does sort of agree that Port should be able to, you know, acknowledge their history. But, I, but possibly he might need to be strong on this issue, because he might be scared. I think he might be scared that if they were to allow them to do that, it might set some kind of precedent. Yeah, um, I can see that. Does that end there? Is it a case of, oh, well, you let us do it for the showdown. Um, how about you let us do it for the home games in South Australia now? That'd be good. And then after that, yeah, where oh, does it well, go? we'd actually like to wear it for every game except against Collingwood. Is that all right? So it kind of, I guess, opens a bit of a Pandora's box, maybe. You'd, no guarantees. But um, I just found there were more questions than answers that came out of this. Uh, and when you came to intellectual property and things like that, I couldn't even find that information. I couldn't find info on what trademarks AFL clubs have over, mm, do yeah. they own the colours? Does Collingwood own the colours black and white? Do they own the right to have the mascot, the magpie? I couldn't find anything on that stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's all just a, a bunch of opinion at this point. Like, for what it's worth, I actually really like Port's jumper at the moment, the black with the V, and I think it's a really good yeah. jumper. yeah. But- I understand that they want to wear the prison bar jumper. It just seems like a compromise could be reached here. Like, why does it have to be the black and white with the prison bars? Why couldn't it be the teal and black? Well, the design is, like, I think a lot of people love the design of the prison bars jumper. It's just, it's very unique, I think, in Australian football. And I don't see why you couldn't add a little bit of teal to it. I think it would look good. And they're probably, if they want to do this, they'll probably have to be some level of compromise. And... Yeah, uh, I, yeah, you can't get exactly what you want, but you can still, you know, you can still pay tribute in another way because they should embrace what they are now as well. Like the, the teal is a good color, and the power is what they are. So, um, yeah, that I, I, that'd yeah. be that'd be my thinking if I had some skin in this game. It would be use the prison bar jumper, change the white out for teal. End of story. I feel like maybe I don't know a lot about this, but. Maybe Port would think, you know, if they do that, then, you know, they're sort of foregoing any chance they ever have to wear their true prison bar jumper. So maybe they're not willing to make that compromise. I'm not sure. But if you really wanted to wear the prison bar jumper more often than not, I think that's probably what you would do. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I think, look, I just think when, when it comes to Eddie, I think over the time that I've ever heard him talk about these issues, he's always very proud that Collingwood's never taken any incentives to change their jumper. So I think over time we've seen the, the light blues with Carlton and, I don't know, the pure milk St Kilda Some of those club are just horrid. Oh, <laughs> they're, they're terrible. And he's very proud of that and so he should be. But I sometimes feel like because he feels like because his club's done it and, they've, and he was part of it, he feels that no other club should do it. Um, but there was a lot of uh, – there was a lot of – circumstances surrounding Port's entry to the AFL and, um, you know, 
if there were money incentives, I mean, football clubs were pretty broke at the time. So it's, you know, you got to do what you got to do. All right. I think we've done that one to death a bit. It was yes. an interesting <laughs> one, but uh, let's move on. So yes to the prison bar, no to the uh, black and white, I suppose. That's where we landed at least. Yep. So um, Compromise. Compromise is key, yeah. So I just wanted to highlight some interesting stats from Richmond's big win over the Bulldogs on Friday night. So Richmond was actually trailing this game by 19 points at halftime, a very inaccurate 2-10 they were. But uh, yeah, they really flicked the switch in the third, just uh, pressure right up and weren't giving the Dogs any time or space. So these stats just, I don't know, I've never seen anything like it. So Basically, for 21 minutes in the third quarter, they had 16 to 0 inside 50s, Richmond 16, Bulldogs 0, and the Western Bulldogs didn't have a single disposal in their half of the ground for that period. Gee, <laughs> no effective whiz. disposals. So that is the domination of all it's dominations. Insane. I'm not sure how many goals they kicked this time, but complete territory dominance. And uh, I guess Bulldogs just couldn't win any contest that's what it tells me those sort of stats that's insane 16 to, to none yeah 16 to none wow. yeah look it definitely looked like it was going the way of the dogs and it was going to be very hard to wrestle the momentum back but it you're right it just the switch just flicked and yeah there was the five consecutive goals and yeah i mean you just who knew richmond bet, could be this good without dustin martin if you're gonna go at the king you you better not miss <laughs> yeah. yeah, so they're definitely still a benchmark despite dropping a few games early in the season. It's going to take a bloody good team to beat them in a knockout final. So, uh, yeah, champions until otherwise proven, I would say. And they do still have age on their side, I think. Like, they're not one of these teams that's really close to sort of tipping over the edge like some of the premiership teams of the past, like 2015 Hawks, uh, I think, were... The, either the oldest or the second oldest. And, uh, yeah, so they're, they're not close to that sort of range. So there's still probably another year or two of this uh, left in it for them to try and add to their Premiership Cup cabinet. Totally agree with that. I mean, off the top of my head, I don't think there's many players over 30 at all in the in the side. You know, Jack Rewald, obviously. Um, Basha Hooley would be. Um, Cochin. But... I'm pretty sure most of the others would be in that sort of 24 to 29 bracket. Yeah, I think so. So definitely still in with a good chance to add to that premiership tally, which will please Richmond supporters no end, I'm sure, after so many years of struggling. Absolutely. I couldn't get through the episode without mentioning this. I guess we already did mention it because we said Melbourne was first in our little top eight uh, (laughs) spiel there. But yes, Melbourne is on top of the ladder for the first time since round three, 2005. So definitely a milestone. And I'm guessing that's probably one of the longest uh, streaks in the AFL for not being top. Maybe other than like, you know, Gold Coast as an expansion club. Be very it's been a long time to see that actually, if that stat exists. So yeah, last undefeated team, Bulldogs going down, and yeah, I guess one week at a time, and it really only, you know, you really got to maintain your form coming into finals, obviously, but you can only do what they're doing at the moment, which is winning games. 
I think, yeah, banking the wins early is definitely important, especially for a team like Melbourne that started this preseason the way we did with Simon Goodwin under pressure. But uh, uh, it does all come down to the pointy end and the run into the finals is the most important, I think. Absolutely. So we're not getting too far ahead of ourselves, for those of you listening, but uh, cautiously optimistic on a team that hasn't lost. So that's about as much as we can do at the moment. It beats the alternative. (laughs) For sure. So for those of you who listened to our D-specific episode uh, a week or so ago, uh, we did bring up the curse of Norm Smith. So I thought I might just circle back to this briefly because uh, we probably didn't get it 100% correct, some of the specifics around this, and there's just some other stuff about Norm Smith that's actually pretty interesting. So I won't labor this too much, but let's go through some of this stuff. So for those of you who didn't uh, listen to that podcast, the curse of Norm Smith is basically uh, they gave him the sack in uh, 1965 after a very good start to the season, and Melbourne obviously hasn't won a premiership since, and a lot of problems with you know not making finals for decades upon decades in some cases uh horrid injuries to star players so people have turned this the curse of norm smith so uh let's see what the roots of this curse actually is so did you know much about the curse of norm smith johnny uh i do actually yeah i'm definitely a student of the melbourne footy club's history so um it, it was always, you know, growing up, I was kind of fascinated with the history and uh, the 50s and 60s, the golden era. Um, it seemed like from everything I'd sort of consumed, like uh, you know, documentaries and that and, um, and books and that, it seemed like that, well, he'd just come off the sixth premiership, I think, in 1964, they'd coached for Melbourne. And I'm thinking, did they win their first six games of 65 and then... He got sacked because of issues between him and the board. You're very close. Let's go yes. into some of the specifics. So he coached Melbourne to six premierships, having played in four as a player. So basically 10 out of the 12 premierships that Melbourne has won, Norm Smith was either coaching or playing. And in 1965, the year after 64, where they'd won, they had won the first eight games to begin the season. And when they were nine wins from the first 12 games. This was when Norm Smith got the sack via telegram. So basically there was a lot of rumor and conjecture about why this was. Why would they sack such a uh, experienced coach who'd done so well and brought so much success to the club? So there was a lot of rumor around Mm -hmm. the relationship between Norm Smith and the board. There was even a defamation case that an umpire brought on Norm Smith uh, regarding some sort of decision and his comments that he'd made on the radio about this. And the club board really didn't support him on this, which I think hurt him quite deeply. I saw an interview with Ron Brassi quite a while ago, actually. I reckon it was about 10 years ago. And he was asked about this. And I think the umpiring incident happened the year before or two years before, maybe 1963. And uh, there was the allegations that he, you know, he called him a cheat and... I think it was a big mistake and he obviously admitted that it was a mistake. But the problem, I think, stemmed from uh, the board just pretty much coming out and telling him, well, you said it, you wear it, you know. And for any other coach, yeah, that might have might have sort of been a, a good way to 
you know, handle it and let him learn his lesson there. But after winning those six premierships and being pretty much the guru of AFL coaching at that point, I think everyone was thinking, why did you not back him to the hill? Yeah. <laughs> Show yeah. him a bit more respect. Yeah. So there was that. And also at the end of 1964, Ron Barassi actually left to go to Carlton. And the board also had the impression that Smith hadn't actually done enough to actually try and keep him at Melbourne or basically gave him his blessing to go to Carlton. And this was not the case either. So Norm Smith really did do everything he could to keep him at Melbourne, but Parassi wanted a new challenge. And uh, I think he wanted to go somewhere he could do sort of that captain-coach role as well. So the board really didn't like that either. I think, yeah, I think Ron was always uh, keen for a new challenge. I think he definitely was one of those guys that wanted to break out on his own and prove himself and... uh, I think that was shown across the, the four clubs that he was involved with. Um, but for Norm, I think especially after he felt the, the board didn't back him, I think he was, he was deeply hurt after that. I don't think he'd ever recovered. Absolutely. So although he was sacked within a week, he was actually reinstated. The public backlash was massive, but it really seemed like the damage was already done. Although Norm Smith did continue coaching through the 1965, 66, and 67 seasons, they never recaptured anything like the form they had uh, in the years prior. So we said they started 65 uh, with nine of the first 12 as wins. They only won one more game for the whole season after it was reinstated. So clearly the damage was already done. And I think they finished just outside the, the four, didn't they? I think they weren't too far down, yes, but uh, they didn't make the four in those days, and uh, Essendon managed to win that premiership from fourth. Mm. So in the next couple of years, Melbourne finished second last in 1966, of course, when St Kilda won their one and only premiership uh, with just three wins, and seventh in 1967. And finally, the Norm Smith coaching journey came to an end when he was replaced by John Beckwith in uh, 1968. And that's pretty much the story I wanted to tell. But yeah, I guess we just missed a couple of the details around, uh, you know, whether he was reinstated and sort of how that affected the club going forward. Uh, so I just wanted to cover off on a couple of those things. Well, it definitely did have an impact on the club going forward, that's for sure. For sure. And uh, only now are we sort of just trying to get out of that shadow, I suppose. And uh, hopefully the curse can be broken at some point in the near future. Hopefully. All right, let's finish off with a couple of true or falses. Johnny, Port's game style currently stacks up against the best teams. True or false? Oh, this this is a little bit tough, but I think it does. I think it does, Uh, but it definitely relies on a few of their key players to be performing. So... If guys like Charlie Dixon aren't performing to a certain level, uh, it's, they get exposed. They need their they need their big forwards to, to be kicking scores. I think for this style, yeah, yeah. I think they're if you can match them in the midfield, then you do have a chance. Like against most teams as well, if you can either break even through the midfield or beat them in the midfield, you're going to have a good chance. So I think that really does limit what Port is able to do, and I think that's kind of what's happened in these two big losses interstate against West Coast and Brisbane. They've been beaten pretty comprehensively through the midfield. And uh, 
haven't really had much of an answer when uh, the teams have got on top of them. So I guess that will be one to look at going forward. Um, I would say probably this is false. Their game style isn't quite stacking up against uh, the best teams, although they did get a win against Richmond. It just does seem like a bit of a worry that they can't put up a better fight in some of these harder games interstate. But is that, the um, is that I guess, effort-related or is that their, their game style? Yeah, I guess you're right. It's, maybe it is more effort-based, but I think there's a, probably a component of both. Like, maybe both, yeah. Do, does the game style actually allow them to have the best chance of actually competing in these sort of games? So That's true, yeah, because um, they're not really... They never sort of negate opponents that much. It's, it's usually they're sort of trying to outclass them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is obviously a lot harder to do. Yes. when you're playing against the better teams, especially interstate. Absolutely. All right, Absolutely. next one. The AFL should move to 18-minute quarters in 2022. True or false? Well, when we first went to 16-minute quarters last year, I thought this is horrible, and I still didn't really like it, um, but I'm going to say true. I think that this is a very fair compromise. We like the word compromise. And I think that, it's just the way that sport's going now, I think. I mean, there's this high-level performance in that, and I think that uh, you do have to think... Like, people say that you don't need to care about the viewer and the consumer and what the product is, but I think you do to an extent. You need to think about things like, um, you know, the ability to take your kids to the game on Friday night and, you know, be or Sunday night or whatever it is and you know, be home at a decent hour. So I think I would give 18 minutes a go, personally. Interesting. Yeah, I'm opposed to this, so I'm going to go false. I really think you need that extra time just to allow the game to play itself out. So much can happen in those that last five minutes of the quarter. Yeah. So oh, good point. I feel yeah. like you are almost uh, compromising the game a little bit. It would be interesting to see 18 compared to 16, but 16 definitely felt too short. And like the whole idea of you know shortening the game to you know compensate for different things that are happening or for the viewer. I think there's better ways we can actually shorten the game rather than actually taking uh, time off the clock, whether it be, you know, the amount of time after a goal, whether it be the breaks. There's so many things you can actually tinker with rather than actually the game time, which is probably the most fundamental and the most sacred thing. That's probably more what I'm... Yeah, that's probably more what I'd be an advocate for is the... The tinkering and the things that you know are wasting the time. So the unnecessary goal reviews that are happening, reviews for balls going directly over the point post, it's really kind of unnecessary. Um, things like something I, I, I'm sure at some point, maybe 10 years ago or more, that the clock would run for a ball up. I don't know at what point it stopped, but it did stop at some point. And I think, <laughs> I don't know, look, maybe that's something that they like to have because, you know, it means teams can't sort of just, Holds it up, but um, things like that, like maybe they could bring that back in and keep the twenty minute quarters. I I would definitely be happy to keep twenty minute quarters, but do things to sort of stop holding the game up. Yeah, I think there's definitely things they could do to try and speed things up a little. But I'd be reticent to actually change the length of the game if we can get away with it. Absolutely. Okay, Toby Green is the best small forward in the AFL. True or false? Well. I mean, look, you could easily say true, but maybe he's the best 
small Sinha forward in the game. <laughs> <laughs> it almost seems strange to call him a small forward because he's more—he's probably more a marking forward than a crumbing forward, although he's so good at crumbing as well. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, look, I'm going to say yes. Uh, I think he is. Um, he's in unbelievable form. He's, I think we said it a few weeks ago, he is probably the spiritual leader of that team. Uh, but he's just so powerful. He's a real power forward without the height, I guess. Yeah, for his size, he's probably one of the best marks as well. So great combination and uh, perhaps a future captain, although he's been doing the stand-in job very well. Yeah. Okay, last one. A captain's challenge needs to be introduced in the AFL. True or false? So this is the idea of having some sort of review system that can be called for by the teams competing. Uh, I guess the idea is to try and uh, remove, you know, the absolute howlers that we have seen uh, towards the end of games. Uh, the blitzers tackle comes to mind. Uh, even what we just talked about then in the Sydney game, you could, in theory, review the length of the kick to Cameron. So, yeah, what do you reckon, Johnny? True or false here? Uh, I like the thinking, but I'm going to say false straight out. Um, we were just talking about things that slow down the game. I think this will slow it down more. Um, let's get our current review system right and our current umpiring right. And, yeah, mistakes happen. That's all right. Happy to live with it. <laughs> yeah, I tend to agree. I would go false as well. I think the use of these review systems in sport, obviously, well, not maybe not obviously, usually it is getting more correct decisions, but at what price? Starts Something like cricket, you know, I think mm. you've taken a lot of the joy out of cricket by having a review system. The joy of cricket is being able to, you know, have the surprise of getting a wicket and the jubilation of something that doesn't happen that often. And to have that sort of interrupted by a review every second or third time it happens, it just seems to suck the joy out of the game for me. And I kind of feel like that a little bit with the AFL as well. Like, obviously, it's not used anywhere near as much, which is great. But, you know, with the whole goal review thing, how anticlimactic is it? Like, it just sucks all the energy out of it. It does. It does. And, yeah, cricket's a good example, I think, uh, where it's sort of, I guess, taken over. I, I think soccer as well. I mean, rare events of goals, the enjoyment, you almost not celebrating because you're waiting to see if there's yeah, any Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, look, it's it, the technology's worked very well with some sports. So I, I think maybe tennis is probably the perfect example of, of it working um, in, and making it better for the fans. But, I, yeah, look, I'm not convinced with AFL that if we start opening that can of worms and getting these captain's calls, I mean, how's that going to work? Are they going to get one each game? Are they going to get, uh, if they get it, right do they lose it or do they is it just unsuccessful ones that they lose is it a challenge kind of thing um probably is needlessly complicated really i mean it's this the sport is just such a good free-flowing sport where it's always moving and it's not you know the, the game's not being stopped all the time for like a you know yeah foul or whatever or something like that i mean free kicks happen very quickly in comparison to things like you know basketball and soccer and that um so I would prefer to keep it that way. Yeah, I think you're right. So I guess in something like tennis, the, the way it's being used is you're not really changing anything that a human can't do, but you, you're just dialing up the accuracy. Whereas the way 
it's actually being used in other sports like I guess football and cricket, you are actually taking it into something a human can't do in, in a way. You're asking the technology to, you know, see the, whether it's such a fine edge is there or, you know, is it cross the line by like a centimetre or not? Like these are things that you can't necessarily tell with the naked eye, whereas in tennis it's kind of just mimicking a human but doing it really well. And in tennis, it's it's really just the is it out or in thing. It's yeah, much that's all yeah. it is. Very simple. Yeah. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see whether they try to introduce something like this in the next few years, but I kind of hope they don't just because of what you're talking about. They're not wanting to slow the game down or, you know, suck the joy out of it in some respects. So, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens, I suppose. Try it out in a preseason tournament and if it doesn't work, just bin it. <laughs> for sure. All right, well, that's about all we have time for. So thanks again for joining us. If you do have any friends and family and you're enjoying footy time, please spread the word. And uh, if you do have a topic or a question you'd like us to raise on the show, the email is footytimemail at gmail.com. Until next time, bye for now. Bye for now.